I was I was going to say something political, but then I thought I shouldn't. I don't know. Well, this is a safe political space. This. Is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just want people to understand the importance of these conversations because I know that in the next election cycle, 45 million immigrants will be vilified, dehumanized, um, treated terribly while, the, while most of the country remains silent. So my hope is that people can show others that they care. They care for immigrants. They care for BIPOC community. And we will not take this shit anymore. <laughs> this is Sadia Khan. She's an activist, social entrepreneur, a podcaster, a mother of two, and a cold brew enthusiast. And she is one incredible woman. Today, Sadia is going to tell us about her dual identity, being a Pakistani-American, how she feels about America, and how her podcast are amplifying the stories and narratives of brown immigrant communities currently living in the United States. My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Here we go. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You were born and raised in Pakistan. What yeah. are some beautiful memories you have of growing up there? Oh, um, flavors, colors, um, people walking on the sidewalks, donkey carts, uh, rickshaws, a lot of noise, a lot of crowd, family coming together, people eating food together all the time. Um yeah, this this strong connection with community and family is at the heart of what Pakistani society is all about. And Pakistanis are extremely hospitable. So whoever has ever been to Pakistan, they'll they'll see that. Uh, my best friend is Pakistani, and ah. uh, even I have not I have not gone to Pakistan with him, but even in New York. In Jamaica, Queens, I know they are insanely hospitable uh, in the most wonderful way. 
Uh, you grew up hearing about the United States from listening to your pops. How would he describe the United States to you? So my dad described it as a meritocracy, a place where you realize your dreams, where anything and everything can happen. And that's the memories that he took with him when he came here in the 70s and then he had to go back for to fulfill certain familial responsibilities. And that's the image that stuck with me for the longest time until I came to the U.S. and everything changed. <laughs> Why, uh, why'd you come? Um, I came because my husband and I, we had just gotten married. He got into a great master's program in Cambridge, Massachusetts at MIT. And we were newlyweds. I think it had been a month, two months. And we just packed our bags and came to the U.S. for an adventure. The idea was we'll stay here for a couple of years and go back to Pakistan. Was Cambridge diverse? Did you, did you find any uh, Pakistani brown community in Cambridge? Ah, uh, So we were living on campus. There is a huge Asian community um, on campus, but... I'm trying to think if I found any Pakistanis, not many in the beginning. And to be honest, I wasn't looking for Pakistani community at the time. I thought we'll go back. So everything seemed alien, strange, and I was okay with that. I was more focused on when we'll go back. And in the meantime, I was exploring Cambridge and I was, you know, enjoying things that were happening on campus. And remember, this was post 9-11 era. So America had already changed. And as an immigrant, I didn't even think I was an immigrant at the time. Um, I was just unaware of what was happening around me. And I was young too, maybe that's why. Who you knows? didn't think you were an immigrant because what, you were a visitor because you felt like you were going to go home? Or? Yeah, I felt I'll go home. Um, I never saw myself as an immigrant because I never thought we would stay here. But all of that changed after a few years when we decided to stay. And this is such a quintessential immigrant story. A lot of immigrants, especially those who come for college, they think they'll go back. That's the idea. You don't think you'll stay. You don't think you will ground yourself in a new culture and society. So I felt that we would eventually go back. But then America has this weird way of just integrating you into society and just holding on to you. And I don't know how to describe that power. Yeah, can you explain it? How? I don't know. It seemed like with every passing day and every passing month, I felt more comfortable in America, despite all the microaggressions, despite being othered, despite not seeing people who looked like me, um, I just felt that I could belong here. The microaggressions, did they did they happen less and less that led to your belonging? Or was it just like your skin got tougher around them? I don't think microaggressions got less. That doesn't happen in America, even to this day, right? But what changed was that I started to realize that people were being nasty or they were asking questions that were very unsettling for me. So I was probably able to push back or be more conscious of why it shouldn't happen. And that gives you a strange power. It's a superpower once you realize you have 
There's no going back. The superpower to push back. Yes, the superpower to reclaim your identity and not let somebody else define it for you. Mm, beautiful. Uh, do you have any examples of these microaggressions or any stories that stand out to you? Or, I mean, one thing that a lot of people would ask is, where are you from? Where is this accent from? Classic. Um, <laughs> since you grew up in Pakistan, did you wear hijab? Were you allowed to go to school? Why don't you wear hijab? Um, what else? Um my daughter, when she was in sixth grade, she was called the Queen of Taliban. I'm born and raised here. Kid didn't even know who Taliban were at the time. Um, so yeah, those were those are some of the examples of microaggressions that I faced. And so, when you reclaim your identity, is it what uh, you know for people listening, or for people listening with a daughter, right? Like, what does reclaiming your identity look like? Just accepting and reasserting, even parts of your identity that you think may be embarrassing or othering to others. So my accent is one example of that. And by the way, I never thought there was anything wrong with my accent, but there is this whole idea or this racial hierarchy of accents that exists in America where British accent is at the top and everything <laughs> else um, follows. I have had so many conversations with people where they were uncomfortable um, you know, talking about their accents or or other people would point out how their accents were somehow not comprehensible. So accepting that, accepting that I am a Muslim woman of color, I am from Pakistan, I am an activist, I believe in certain things and I hold those values close to myself and this is who I am. So accept me as I am and if you don't, then I don't care. And that's what you told your daughter? I do. I tell my daughters to assert their identities, to be proud of who they are, and to believe in the power of diversity in America, because that's, again, a tool that will come in handy for them in future. How does diversity come in handy for us? I agree with you, but I'd love to know, you know, like, we talk a lot about diversity, the change doesn't actually happen as much as the talk. Why should someone invest in diversity? Like, what is the power of diversity? So when I say diversity, I want to be clear. I don't want, I don't mean representation for the sake of representation, right? We see a lot of conversation about, oh, we have this many brown people at the table now, or we have representation because somebody looks a certain way. It's, creating a space where everybody can feel that they belong, right? And that is true representation and diversity. So whether those spaces are created within our social discourse or political discourse, everyday life, it's how we look at other people and accept their humanity as they come rather than accept, expecting them to change and assimilate in ways that are palatable to us. I uh, am half Colombian, half Dominican. I was not, I was very much raised with culture, with, uh, you know, identity, with Latinidadness. Uh, I did not visit my parents' respective, you know, homelands, motherlands, uh, fatherlands. Have your girls uh, been to Pakistan? Yeah, they've been to Pakistan quite a few times. And it's interesting, Chris, I don't know if this happened to you. 
But ironically, when they go to Pakistan, for their cousins and family members there, they are not Pakistani enough, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, and when they are here, they are not American enough. And again, I do have a problem with how we define American. A lot of times, even immigrants like myself conflate Americanness with whiteness, and that's not true. These are two very different aspects of one's identity. But yeah, so it's challenging for them. But yeah, they've been back. They love it there. They love the food. They love the extra care and nurturing that happens um, for them, with them. And they are comfortable in saying who they are. I mean, there are times when they will feel embarrassed when I'm doing something or I'm saying something that they think others may not understand. Then they do feel a bit embarrassed um, and they will say things like, oh, my gosh, this is so cringy, which really means that they're embarrassed <laughs> about it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I am really proud of both of them because they have accepted that part of their identity pretty well. So how long have you been in the States? Oh, wow. Um, 20 years? When you go back to Pakistan. I'm not the same either. Are you, yeah, are you Pakistani enough or do they give you, are you I'm not, not. And it's such an incredible question slash statement. And I recently, I was talking to somebody about this and I told them, I said, when I go back, I am not Pakistani enough, enough either. And there are things that bother me or that I am not comfortable with anymore, um, which I was comfortable with prior to coming to the U.S. So in a way, I have transitioned into this human who is navigating duality of their identity all the time. So there are days when I'm Pakistani, full-on Pakistani. And then there are the days when I'm more American than Pakistani when it comes to conversations around rights, when it comes to conversations around equality, when it comes to conversations around asserting my individualistic identity, I become an American. But then when it comes to valuing your family and community and prioritizing the collective over personal, I'm pretty much a Pakistani, especially in the context of how you speak to your elders, respect, disrespect. It's a huge thing for me and my family. And I've had a lot of discussions with, with my kids around it. And what I've realized is that all of us have different emotional identities, which are part of the broader cultural norms and external factors that influence us. And we don't even realize um, but your question, yeah, after having lived in the U.S. for so long, I really don't know who I am and where I truly belong. It's become a mindset for me more than a geographic location or a proximity to a physical place. Uh, can you tell me any code switching you possibly do when you go back to Pakistan? I am trying to think, A, language itself, and then I think my... Attitude changes. Sometimes I am, I, I don't want to say I'm more relaxed, but in a way, when I go out, I'm not as conscious of my surroundings because I feel I fit right in and nobody is going to question my accent or the way I look or the way I behave. So that's something that 
I feel a lot more comfortable in Pakistan versus in the U.S., where I still struggle a bit when I go out. Um, other than that, I guess just being more loud. Um, I feel <laughs> like I have... So English is my intellectual language. I speak English when I have to deliberate on things and investigate and interrogate parts of myself. But Urdu and Pashto are the two other languages that I speak fluently, and they are my emotional assets. I use them when I am angry or sad, when I'm happy. I can express myself in those languages. So that's code switching that happens here and in Pakistan. Do your girls speak those languages? They understand those languages, but no, they cannot speak those languages, unfortunately. Selective bilingual. It's, it's, you know, it's also, <laughs> no, it's part of the new generation, right? It's the same with myself and, and my parents' relationship with me in Spanish, right? Like, you understand it, but you're not forced to speak it back. And so you don't build that muscle. So the interesting thing is I really, uh, like, I was very particular about them learning the language. And I really tried hard. And I feel that is something that's different for parents who probably came post-2000 versus parents who came in the 70s and the 80s. And I'm just making this observational statement. I don't have any data to prove it, but I feel we are more comfortable integrating into American society versus assimilating into American society. We don't think we need to assimilate. We don't think we need to give up on our names and our languages and our cultural norms in order to be American. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Sadia is going to tell us about the incredible work she's doing through podcasting. Stick around. And we are back with Sadia Khan. Sadia currently has two podcasts out. One is called Immigrantly. It is a beautiful podcast which highlights the everyday extraordinary lives of immigrant communities currently living in the United States. Her podcast has created a safe space for open dialogue and a beautiful exchange of ideas. So what compelled you to start the podcast? Oh, so... There were a lot of factors, right? Podcast is a culmination of a decade of microaggressions, feeling left out, not just because I am an immigrant, but also because I am a Muslim woman of color. And we all know how America views Muslims, <laughs> especially their like how America views Muslims in general, and it has a huge and negative impact on American Muslims and diaspora living here. So it was a lot of things, but then 2016 elections, I feel, really catapulted me into creating something of a platform where I could have unadulterated conversations around identity. I was, I am an activist. I was 
working for a small civil society organization focused mostly on women's rights globally. And then 2016 elections happen, and I am a huge podcast listener. I was listening. I started listening to podcasts with Serial, and since then I've been consuming podcasts on a daily basis. And I felt like podcasting is such a powerful medium to create stories and narrate stories for people to learn and unlearn in their own time, on their own journey, without any judgment or fear of judgment, because it's such an intimate and casual medium that people connect with. And I felt if I could have a podcast where I could showcase those stories, people would at least see the human side of immigrant identity rather than seeing them only in the context of policy our politics. And that was the whole idea. So it started off as the Alien Chronicles. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought I could reclaim <laughs> the term alien. It didn't happen. So we switched to immigrantly. But what I also realized was that I cannot have conversations about immigrants without tapping into America's relationship with its um, racial history and cultural identity and America's past um, or America's history of genocide and discrimination. And so I started to bring in those conversations and those conversations became a backdrop for more holistic conversations around immigrant identity. And we've been doing this for four years. I've met 200 something incredible, incredible guests through it. And we've covered a vast spectrum of humanity and shown that immigrant experience is so vast and it is so diverse and beautiful. Um, yeah. What's the takeaway you want a listener to have after hearing this? To be able to see the humanity in other people and for those who are unseen to feel that they are seen and heard. I think that's what I want people to take away from it. Anybody listening, if they have never met an immigrant or a person of color and they listen to our podcast, they should be able to connect with those human experiences because we are all humans at the end of the day. We have same priorities and weaknesses and strengths and fears. But at the same time, there are so many people out there. And this platform, first and foremost, is for BIPOC community who feel unheard and unseen. And I want them to feel seen. And I've seen this with so many guests, even those who by certain standards have, quote and unquote, made it in America. They felt unseen and unheard in terms of their identity and who they were. And I've had these conversations with guests post my interviews with them where they would see, you know what, we came on this podcast and we were able to interrogate and investigate ourselves a lot more and understand ourselves a lot better. Well, we often hustle, I think, you know, immigrants, bodies of cultures, uh, non-white bodies in America often hustle so hard just for the feeling of being seen because of the way we so easily equate success to visibility. Uh, if I have success, if I have a large bank account, if I have nice car, if I have this, then I am visible. Um, and that's what we want more than anything is visibility. You know, that's a great point. But when I see being seen, I mean seeing in terms of their humanity and not their bank balance 
or the job that they are holding and how they are contributing to American economy, right? And a lot of times, unfortunately, as you said, that's what immigrants see themselves as. They want to be successful because they want others to see them as valuable assets or members of the community, mostly because they think that if they weren't that, then they do not belong. And they sometimes just sideline their humanity in the process. Well, that's what America teaches us, right? Like Ameri- like to return to caring for our elders, America does not teach us that, you know, you are enough loving your family. You are enough if you can buy your family a trip to Disney, then you are enough. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's, not, it's not in the narrative of the simplicity of caring for others is success. You're caring absolutely your right. Block, yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, is there an episode that has struck you the most? Oh, it's difficult to pick one because there are so many that I love and I feel like I've learned so much from my guests. But it's interesting, the recent episode that I did with Simone Stalzoff, he wrote a book called The Good Enough Job. And this is about how Americans value work and how they see work as such an integral part of their existence. And they see fulfillment and self-actualization only through work and how Americans should see their value and worth outside the work. And I had this conversation with him and I was blown away. And that's one of our recent episodes. So if you haven't ever listened to Immigrantly, you can start there with Simone's episode. And then our recent episode with Raha Francis, which talks about emotional identities, parent-child dynamic, respect, disrespect, and how we filter things through generational and cultural lens. So I would suggest recent two episodes. And if one podcast isn't enough, you also host another podcast called Invisible Hate. It sheds light on the worst true crimes. That's your true crime podcast. (laughs) That is my true crime podcast, yes. Uh, Why'd you start it? Because you loved cereal? No. So I started it because, as I said in the beginning, I consume a lot of true crime podcasts. And don't ask me why. I don't know. And I really thought about it. And the only explanation I can come up with is maybe it's feeling... I guess some people feel morally superior superior listening to these podcasts and we feel, okay, we are not like those perpetrators and maybe that gives us some sense of, I don't know, worse. But anyways, I do listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, but what I realized was that most of them are very sensationalized and commercialized and I felt most podcasts are not talking about hate crimes that are perpetrated against minorities and my friend Asad and I he owns this media company called Refillion. We decided to collaborate on this particular podcast. It's a collaboration between Immigrantly and Refillion and we tackle one hate crime at a time and we do it in a very respectful, ethical way where we focus on the victim more than the perpetrator. But then the way we tell story is in the end, we deliberate whether we think it was a hate crime or not. And then we ask our listeners to think about it and get back to us. But the good thing is we are amplifying stories and narratives that are often sidelined. 
Um, people think hate crimes don't happen in America, or if they happen, they happen seldom. And I can tell you there are so many cases of hate crimes happening all the time. What is a hate crime? A hate crime is a crime that is perpetrated against a person based on their perceived identity in the context of religion, national origin, sexual orientation. Um, yeah, and hate crime can be perpetrated against humans and objects. A lot of times you will see vandalism happening at temples and mosques. That is a hate crime as well, but it is also perpetrated against humans. How are you, if, if these things are not reported, how are you finding them? They are not reported in or they are not covered as much in the mainstream media, but there are resources that you can look online and find cases that are often not covered or covered by the mainstream media. And anything that's not covered by the mainstream media, unfortunately, gets sidelined and nobody pays attention to it. Any examples of uh, recent things you all debated? So we debated this hate crime. In fact, yesterday I recorded one of the episodes where the perpetrator tried to run over two kids whom she thought were Mexican, according to her, or part of the ISIS. And I don't know how she came <laughs> up with that, that description in wow. her mind. But the case was tough because she suffered from or she suffers from mental illness. So she has schizophrenia and she um, has done substance abuse. So for us, it was very difficult to classify as a hate crime, although she was prosecuted on the basis of that. But for me, it was difficult to call it a hate crime, given her history of substance abuse and schizophrenia and other, other mental health issues. But Asad thought it was a hate crime. Um, so, yeah, that's the recent case that we covered. Do you have any examples of an episode where you you forgave something? Like you were like, it's, it's not a hate crime. Not forgive, but there have been certain cases where the perpetrators are young. They are minors, 15, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. And it's very difficult for me to believe that a 15 or a 16-year-old could commit a hate crime, um, at least intentionally or consciously. And that goes back to what the broader society is teaching that 16-year-old, what their parents are teaching them and what kind of message we are giving to 15, 16-year-olds. So it's difficult for me to look at crimes perpetrated by minors at hate, as hate crimes. But believe it or not, there are so many hate crimes that are perpetrated by minors against other young folks or minors. Is that because you have children? Yes, and also because I think your brain is not fully developed until mid-20s, right? And I'm not an expert, but I've heard that. And to me, if you cannot comprehend the intensity or the impact of the heinous crime that you're committing, can you be held accountable? And what will criminali criminalization achieve, right? And then we can talk about rehab rehabilitation and what that looks like and what 
does community-based reintegration mean for kids who are 15 and 16 rather than putting them in jails where they could become hardened criminals. So there's this whole debate around what will make them better humans in the long run. Are most of these cases that you look into, is it usually white people uh, perpetrating the crimes? Yeah, because most crimes that we are looking at are crimes committed against minorities, and those are by white people. But as far as I can recall, we haven't covered a crime that was minority on minority, except for one crime that was perpetrated by a Muslim perpetrator against other Muslims. Uh, And the reason for that is there are plenty of platforms that are already doing that, and we don't want to voice the same concerns. We want to focus more on what's happening to minority groups in America because those are the stories that are often sidelined and not covered as much. And minority groups, unfortunately, are already vilified in America. So for us, the important thing is to amplify voices that are sidelined rather than focusing on what the mainstream media is already covering. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, What do you hope people learn from that podcast? To treat others the way they would treat themselves and again, see humanity and everybody and see the impact that hate crimes can have, not just on individuals, but on communities. Because once hate crime is perpetrated against a a person from a certain community, a minority group, it really shakes up the entire community because they feel vulnerable, they feel attacked. Um, And it can have huge impact. Um, So I want people to understand that a hate crime is not just against a person, it's against a community. Is there anyone you would like to uh, put on blast? Anyone whose work you really admire right now? Anyone you want to give love to? Um, I had a guest on my podcast. She came on my podcast at least three times. Her name is Saira Rao. um, And she recently founded this organization called Here for the Kids, which is fighting against gun violence. And people can follow them on Instagram. They can follow them on all different platforms. And that's the first thing that comes to my mind right now, especially for our children, our future. We need to protect them. And the only way to protect is to ban guns. Salia, thank you so much for creating a safe space for voices like ours to express and share what our experiences are like as brown folks in the U.S., but also for reminding us that we are, most certainly enough. You can find Immigrantly and Invisible Hate wherever you get your podcast. I highly recommend it. And you can keep up with all things Sadia by following her Twitter account at SWKKHAN. That's SWKKHAN. Until next time, y'all. Much love. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher Studios. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabriella Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Thanks. Peace and love.